great to be with you in this strange format that we've got. If you're a note taker today, can I encourage you to go and grab a pen and a piece of paper? Uh, I'm going to give you two points. Uh, kids, if you're taking notes, it can, it's going to help you really to listen to what's going on. Uh, two points, broad points that we're looking at today. One is how we love people at church, and the other is how we love people who persecute us or how we love people who give us a hard time. That's where we're headed. I want to start with a question as we kick off today. What did you expect when you came to church? Now, I had in mind a while back to ask you this question about what were you thinking church was going to be like as you were driving to church? But obviously that's radically different. So I want to ask you the question, what were you thinking as you open up your laptop, as you set up your lounge room? What were you hoping and expecting would happen at church today? As we just read the Bible, I want you to know that we just read 30 different instructions, 30 different do's and don'ts for the Christian life. Were you expecting to hear that today? Generally, it's part of Australian culture not to sit well under instructions. We kind of resist those who tell us how we ought to live our lives, how we ought to do things. It's natural and kind of the Australian way to say, no way, I'll decide what I'm going to do in response to people who tell us what to do. But we do see these 30 different commands in Romans 12. And our job is to sit under them. But as we do that, I want you to make sure that you don't lose sight of the why we are to sit under these instructions. And the why is not in order to be made right with God, but because God has made us right with him. We don't do these things in order to achieve right status with God, but we do it because God has shown mercy to us. Uh, Jen and I have got three girls and a boy and we've just finished teaching our third daughter how to drive a car. It's quite an experience having an L-plater in the household. It keeps you on your toes as a teacher of of a kid who is learning to drive. We've got one kid to go, that's Zach. Uh, I'm looking forward to the opportunity to teach him. As kids learn to drive, as you teach them to drive, there is heaps of stuff that they need to learn. And some of it they get instinctively, but a lot of it they don't. One of the things they never get instinctively is to look in the mirror. And I am continually telling our kids when, we're there, when they are learning to drive to keep looking in the rearview mirror. They've got massive eyes for what is in front of them as they're driving, but they don't instinctively look in the mirror. So I keep on saying, check your mirrors, check your mirrors, check your mirrors. Friends, the Christian life is one that is lived by checking our mirrors. So check your mirrors, check your mirrors, check your mirrors. Romans 12 verse 1, Ed took us through last week. Let me read that for you. This is how we're to check our mirrors. Romans 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. We're to understand what God has done in the past as we look towards how we are to live out the life of obedience in the future. We are to continually look back to check our mirrors at what God has done in the person and work of Jesus. And it's that event, the event of God's mercy, that powers us and enables us 
to live out the life of obedience, to do these 30 commands and the many more that the Bible gives us. And it's because God has shown mercy and forgiveness that we're now to do obedience. So here's the practical action guide for the Christian life. What are you to do? Have a look with me at verse 9, chapter 12. Here's what we're to do. Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. If you distill all all of the instruction of how to do the Christian life down to one principle, it's love. And what we're going to look at today is two different categories of what it means to love. The first one is what? how do we do love for the church? And the second one is how do we do love for those who persecute us? How do we do love for the church? How do we do love for those who per- persecute us? Have a look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Be devoted to one another in love. The Olympics has just started. In my family, that's a big deal. We're going to spend as much time as possible in front of the telly in the next couple of weeks. It's kind of handy to have a couple of days of lockdown where it's compulsory to be inside and the weather's helped in that regard. Uh, As we watch the Olympics, we're watching athletes who are devoted to their performance, to doing the best that they can. So for years and years, our Olympic athletes have been getting up every day saying, what do I need to do? to perform at my best in Tokyo in 2020 or in 2021 as COVID's made it. See, our athletes are devoted to their performance and we are to be devoted to the people of church in love. We're to be devoted to those people that you see at church in love. That means we serve one another. We look out for one another's needs. Have a look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. If someone at church needs something done, that means we'll jump in and do it. In the middle of a lockdown, if someone needs uh, food brought to them, one of us will jump in, go to the shops, do the shopping and land it on their doorstep. If they need prayer for anything in particular, then we'll be praying for one another because that's what it means to be devoted to one another in love. And if you work with someone from church or you're at school with someone from church, then you ought to be devoted to them in love as well. Now we're about to talk about what it means to be uh, what it means to love those who persecute us. But as we connect how we love those we church with, how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we love those who persecute us, let's just think for a minute about how we can love our Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution, who are having a hard time, either for being a Christian or just getting a hard time. So let me think of the, let's think of the example of kids at school. If you're at school with a Christian brother or sister, with another kid who is a Christian, and you hear them getting a hard time at school, then the opportunity is there for you to care for them, to look out for them to let them know that you see what's going on and perhaps to let them know that you're praying for them and looking out for them. Likewise, if you've got an angry boss who's upset with the way that you're working or who is unfairly treating treating you, uh, then the ideal is that a Christian brother or sister who works with you would be faithful in prayer for you, 
that they would come to you and let, let you know that they're praying for you, that they might even be praying for you not to repay evil with evil, but to bless instead of persecute those who persecute you, to bear up under persecution. So that's a little of what it might look like for us to love our Christian brothers and sisters. Now we're going to move on to what it looks like to love those who persecute us. And as we do this, I want you to see just how radical this command is, just how countercultural it is for us to love those who persecute us. Have a look with us. Uh, we're going to pick out verse 14, verse 17 and verse 19 uh, to see what Paul's saying here. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 17, do not repay anyone evil for evil. And verse 19, do not take revenge. That's radically different to the way the world lives around us, isn't it? The world seeks revenge to those who give them a hard time. But God is telling us that we ought to love those who give us a hard time. God's command to Christians is do not seek revenge. Don't repay evil with evil. So now let's look at what we're supposed to do positively. We're going to pick it up again at verse 19. I'll read through these couple of verses. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So the command's clear. We are to do good to those who do wrong or evil to us. But what is it that Paul is saying about burning coals and heaping up those burning coals on someone's head? What is this? Uh, what does this mean? Well, first, we ought to know that it can't mean that there'll be vengeance in this. Paul can't be saying that somehow if you are nice and you care for the physical needs of those who persecute you, then somehow you will make their life absolutely miserable and you'll get your revenge that way. That can't be what he says because the overriding principle for this section is we are to love and to love without hypocrisy. We're to love genuinely and sincerely and we're not to seek revenge. That's what verse 19 tells us. Do not take revenge. So what is it that Paul's saying here? Well, he's actually quoting Proverbs 25 uh, and it's pleasing to God if we live this way, if we care for those who persecute us rather than acting in revenge or vengeance. And that's how we ought to live. What about these burning coals? Well, burning coals come up a few times in the Bible. In the Psalms, they're associated with God's judgment. So burning coals are a picture of God bringing judgment on unrepentant people. And so Paul is saying, if you act with love towards your enemy, then they will have the judgment of God on their heads. They will have burning coals on their heads. Now, there's two ways you can think about that. You can either say that God's judgment will come on them or you can say that there is a sense in which they will know the judgment of God would be right on their evil actions. And so I think this is what Paul is telling us 
ought to happen in response to our love and care for those who persecute us. How would this work? Well, it's because your loving actions to people who are doing evil towards you is going to highlight their evil actions. And if someone has done wrong and you respond in love and doing what is right and good, then it actually serves to highlight their wrongdoing. So in a sense, they will know that the judgment of God would be right on their evil because they clearly see your good being done towards them. And the burning coals would be an awareness of God's right coming judgment on them. And I'm certain that Paul and the God that we worship would want that person to turn to God in repentance and so know the mercy and the forgiveness that all of Romans has been talking about until this chapter, that God offers anyone who turns to him in repentance, turns to Jesus in trust. So we ought not to think that somehow if you act kindly towards those who are persecuting you that they will somehow suffer and that you'll get your revenge that way. It's not as if these burning coals are landed on their head and you get revenge because they get third-degree burns as a result of everything they've done. But it may make them feel ashamed of their actions of hate when compared to your love. And so in that sense, it'll leave room for God's wrath and judgment on all of their wrongdoing. And, uh, and we pray and hope that those people will turn to Jesus in trust And so all of God's right judgment would land on the person of Jesus and not on them. Uh, And so that's what we're hoping and praying for would happen. And I think that makes the best sense of the context. If you have a look with me back at verse 19 again, Paul says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Uh, And that's where we should land. Feeding and watering our enemies is not a roundabout way of making them suffer. It is actually good overcoming evil in a very practical way and allowing God to judge or to show mercy according to his good purposes. So our motivation is not to make them suffer but to love. Now, all of that is so easy to say, isn't it? But how on earth do you do it? If they're little wrongs against us, you can see how we might be able to do that. For little wrongs, We can do forgetfulness. We can just say, well, it's insignificant. I won't worry about that because it wasn't such a big deal. But how do you do forgiveness in regard to the great evils that occasionally come into our lives when people deliberately try to hurt us? How do we do forgiveness in those circumstances? Because I think that that is really, really difficult for us to do. How do you do genuine forgiveness to people who have deliberately hurt you in a very significant way? How do you recognise a wrongdoing and still say, I won't hold this against you? I'll absorb this pain myself rather than hold this against you and lash out against you. Well, the way we do that is clear in Romans. It's by looking in the rear vision mirror. It's by seeing God's mercy and being reminded of God's forgiveness day by day and knowing that God who forgives freely empowers us to do forgiveness, even to those who have gravely hurt us. 
Have a look with me at Romans 5, verse 10, and we see something of the character of God, of the forgiveness of God here. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. As we looked at last week with Ed, we can't do this obedience that Paul is talking about in Romans, powered by our own hard work or by a sense of obligation or out of a sense of guilt. None of those things will be effective in enabling us to do obedience to all of these commands. But we can do this radical love when we look to the gospel, when we look to the God who forgives in the person of Jesus, when we look and see the God who knew us as enemies and yet acted in love for our benefit, even when it cost him, when it cost him the life of his one and only son, our God showed mercy to us, his enemies. And now our God calls us to show mercy to our enemies as well. How do you do all of this? You look in the rear vision mirror. You keep going back to the mercy of God. You keep going back to the gospel that tells us that we are unworthy sinners who've been richly and generously saved only because of the mercy of God, not because of anything we have done. And now in response to that, that is the only way we can love our enemies is when we know that God has loved us when we were enemies and given his son up to death for us. That is the event of God's mercy, friends, that we need to have clearly in view in the revision mirror day by day so that powers us to love those who persecute us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognise that you're a God who calls us to the obedience that comes from faith. We see that you give us so many different ways that we should live out our lives in our obedience to your commands. And in many ways, we recognise that on our own, we cannot do this. Lord Jesus, help us to know the gospel, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. So it changes the shape of who we are so that you would enable us to love those who persecute us so that we would live for your honour in this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.